You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for June 2019. Consequences of Fig Leaves In a universe created by a spirit being, spiritual reality is primary and physical reality is secondary. To enjoy sustained blessings and favor in the physical universe requires proper understanding of and alignment with the Creator. Management must always recognize the importance of alignment with the will and ways of the Creator. When misalignment occurs, the organization's ability to function properly will be impaired. Misalignment is a sin, and sin has negative consequences. Sin, such as the wrong gospel, will manifest in people's work product. Wise managers will learn how to discern sin in workers by evaluating their work, knowing that excellent work product is rooted in sound theology. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Consequences of Fig Leaves. Well, this morning, the topic is Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, and I've titled this, uh, this message, A Singular Sanctification by the Spirit. In chapters 1 and 2 of Galatians, the redoubtable Apostle Paul testified to his singular calling through the singular revelation of the singular gospel of the grace of Christ and shared how he had to fight the religious leaders of his day to uphold his convictions. In chapter 3, Paul turns his attention to the Galatians, who followed the pattern of many and fell from grace as a means of salvation. Clearly, the propensity in all of us is to abandon the gospel of grace and return to the gospel of fig leaves, which is no real, no real gospel at all. There's only one gospel, the singular gospel of the grace of Christ. There is no other gospel. Paul ended chapter 2 with one of the greatest texts of the New Testament. It is a very popular Bible verse, a very popular refrigerator verse. It is the transition text from his defense against the attacks by the religious leaders to his correction of his disciples. He said this in Galatians 2, 20 and 21. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The singular gospel of the grace of Christ has three tenses, past, present, and future. In this verse, Paul stressed the first two, that is in verse 20 of Galatians chapter 2. The past tense is the sovereign work of God alone to regenerate us. I have been crucified with Christ. Now clearly that's speaking of our spiritual state. And the present tense is the continuation of the sovereign work of God in the process of sanctification. In other words, not only did he regenerate us, he wants to sanctify us. Paul said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Clearly he's talking again spiritually. You're still physically alive. You didn't physically die. You are, you're physically alive, but spiritually, okay, you have been, the part of you that's in rebellion against God has been crucified through your regeneration, and now you are spiritually made alive in Christ. So that's what he's saying. That's the present tense. The past tense is about imputing our sin to Christ and becoming positionally righteous. The present tense is about Christ empowering us 
through his spirit to live for him. There's an element of human synergism in the present tense of salvation, but the potency is all from God. In verse 21 of chapter 2, Paul has to clarify, because he knows it could be easily misunderstood, that human synergism does not nullify the grace of God. Salvation in all three tenses is a sovereign work of God. People who are regenerated by the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit begin to display faith in Christ, and because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, they begin to seek to live obedient to the commands of Christ. Living obediently requires training, which is part of what Christ commanded his disciples to do in the discipleship mandate of Matthew 28. In other words, being fallen creatures, we have a default to sin and rebellion against God. And so living obediently to Christ is not natural. It is not part of our innate nature. We have to train and we have to be discipled into, into learning how to do that. And that's what we, that's what the process of um, walking with people is all about. That's what discipleship is all about. That's what fathering is all about. That's what management should be all about, is getting people aligned with how to obey Christ in every area of life. In a very few verses in Galatians chapter 3 here, Paul chides the Galatians for their inconsistency and poor understanding of grace. Part of his rebuke, was the use and the vision of the Old Testament patriarch Abraham as a model for living by faith. Also, Paul connected the singular gospel to the Abrahamic covenant in a rather amazing way, demonstrating the internal coherence of the gospel message in both the Old and New Testaments. So this text is very rife with some fresh revelation and fresh insight. And at the end, I want to apply what, you, what we're going to talk about in this teaching today to a business situation and show you how believing the true, believing the true gospel is essential to producing great workers. If you don't believe the right gospel, you will inherently be flawed as a worker and it will show up in your work. And I'll give you an example of that at the end. Galatians chapter 3 verses 1 through 9. Let me read that for you. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Have you begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The Galatian believers were influenced by the Apostle Paul initially, and then when he left, they were influenced by some false leaders, leaders who denied the singular gospel of the grace of Christ. 
And because of the propensity in all of us, it was easy for them to be persuaded by these false leaders. These false apostles denied the work of Christ on the cross. If Christ was not crucified, there was no imputation of sin to them and no imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. The historicity of the crucifixion is as important as the historicity of the resurrection. Paul makes this latter point in 1 Corinthians 15 and the former point here in Galatians. The communication of the reality of the crucifixion was clearly seen either literally or metaphorically. The Greek word translated in the ESV, publicly portrayed, meant to portray openly, depict, or write. In other words, there was some kind of public performance that all of them saw that depicted the, the crucifixion and probably the other events around the crucifixion. Perhaps the Galatians had the ancient version of what we know as the Passion Play. The Passion Play is a popular production here in Arkansas that illustrates the Passion of Christ which is his trial, his death, burial, and resurrection. And perhaps it was an artistic performance or maybe a great oration that conveyed the story of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. In the times of the New Testament, it was very common for the Greeks and Romans to listen to oration. They really admired great speakers, great eloquent speakers. So it could have been an oration or it might have been a play or some kind of performance. In the New Testament times, excellent oration was a generic form of entertainment. Paul mentioned the Holy Spirit for the first of 15 times in the epistle here in this text. He intimates that the evidence of double imputation, which we previously talked about, is the gift of the Holy Spirit to those who express faith in Christ and that faith is demonstrated by congruent works. It appeared that the Galatians knew they had received the Holy Spirit, but were not clear that the Holy Spirit was a gift associated with salvation by grace. They were confused. In Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians, he stated that the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit was a gift. He said that God has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 22. And in the epistle to the Ephesians, Paul said that Christ, that in Christ you were sealed with a promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. That's Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. The gift of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a gift that confirms the reality of one's salvation and is manifested by faith in Christ and a lifestyle progressively aligning with the will and ways of God. If one is not clear on the manifold blessings of the grace of Christ, one can easily revert to legalism and the way of fig leaves, which is what happened with the Galatians. Paul's correction to these first century believers was made using six rhetorical questions. Rhetorical questions have implied answers that are obvious from the context. So we're going to look at the, each of these questions individually. The first question in verse 1, who has bewitched you? To be bewitched is to be charmed or deceived by false representations. The term bewitched was an accusatory term that implied the Galatians were under some kind of spell or curse. They were exposed to false teachers who were confused regarding the nature of salvation. Even though the singular gospel of the grace of Christ was clearly communicated through artistic oration and or writings, as well as the Apostle Paul's own words, 
These early believers were lured away from the truth. The Galatians listened to the wrong people. They were deceived by those who taught a gospel other than the singular gospel. The next question in verse 2. Did you receive the Spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit, by works of the law or hearing with faith? The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is imparted to believers as a free gift from God. It is part of the process of regeneration. When a person is regenerated, the Holy Spirit begins to indwell the person. The evidence of this reality is that person begins to express faith in Christ and seeks to live congruent with that faith. The phrase hearing with faith refers to the evidence of the indwelling of the Spirit, not the agency. It's the evidence. The, truth, the text was not inferring that faith was the agency of receiving the Spirit. Rather, the two, the two compa text compared two means of salvation, which is dependence on the works of the law versus faith in Christ. Those are the two means of salvation being compared. And the point he's making is that if you've truly been saved, then you will express faith in Christ. The third question in verse 3 is, are you so foolish? Very short little question, and really a, a question that if my mom were ever to heard me call somebody a fool, she would um, say something like, I'm going to wash your mouth out with soap, because you don't call people fools, because fool is a very disparaging, derogatory, pejorative term. But this is the word the apostle uses. Not only uses it in verse 3, used it in verse 1 too. To be foolish is to be without knowledge or ignorant of something that you can and should know. The Galatians were taught the truth by Paul and others, but responded to the false teachers as if they didn't know the truth. The word fool here is very pejorative. Clearly, Paul used this deprecating term for shock value. He wanted them to stop and think about what they claimed to believe and its implications. So, are you so foolish? And the implied answer is, yes, you are being foolish. You're being foolish because you are listening to false teachers. Now, the fourth question in verse 3, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected or completed or sanctified by the flesh? This is the second question in verse 3. The question in verse 2 addressed the past tense of salvation, that is regeneration. The question was, did you receive the Spirit while works of the law or hearing with faith? Now this question in verse 3 addressed the present tense, which is sanctification. And it reads, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The Galatians understood that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit was given by the grace of God at regeneration. Or at least they should have understood that. But they had abandoned the singular gospel of the grace of Christ with regard to sanctification. What can be confusing about the grace of God and sanctification is that the work of the Holy Spirit involves human synergism. Clearly, this required the ability to respond correctly to the Holy Spirit. The word translated perfected is an intensified form of teleo. Teleo is the common word that means bring something to completion or to complete a purpose or objective. The intensified form implies full completion. The verb was in the present tense, which means continuous action. Passive voice, which implies that the action was performed on them. In other words, they were not completing themselves. They were being completed by some other agent. And the indicative mood 
means that it's a fact. So the grammar <coughs> that's used here associated with teleos is very specific. This is a continuous process that's being done on you, and it will be done. It's a fact. It's happening. Paul sought to remind the Galatians of what they had been taught about the sovereign work of God in the process of sanctification and to admonish them not to revert to another gospel. Sanctification only happens by means of the power of God at work in people. As Paul said at the end of the previous chapter, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, past tense. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the present tense. The present tense reality of sanctification is based on the sacrificial work of Christ on the cross. The phrase, the life I now live, intimated human synergism in some form. He denied that human synergism in any way nullified the grace of God in the next verse. That is verse 221. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. In other words, to say that I now live, which might be interpreted as some level of our dependence on us for our sanctification, he's saying that is not a correct understanding. I am not nullifying the grace of God. But there is a level of human synergism, and that synergism is powered and empowered by the Spirit at work in us. This is why sanctification is the sovereign work of God. Now the fifth rhetorical question he has here in verse 4 says this, Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? This is the most interesting verse. It implies that the Galatians were regenerated and shared in the suffering that is the lot of every believer. Numerous texts affirm that believers can expect to experience suffering. Just consider the following. In the upper room discourse, Jesus said, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. John 15, 20. Paul noted the same truth in these words penned to the Philippian church. Philippians 1, verses 29 through 30. For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. To his spiritual son Timothy, Paul wrote, 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And the apostle Peter weighs in on this too. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, he applies this now specifically to the workplace and our duty as citizens. He says, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. In other words, Christ suffered, so must we. Suffering and persecution was clearly understood to be the lot of, of every believer. And, of course, the degree varies, depending on where we live, when we live, the assignment we have. But we will all suffer in some way if we do right, if we live righteously. Paul's fifth question here challenged the Galatians to consider their suffering. They obviously had suffered something for identifying with Christ. 
If they fail to be true to the singular gospel, this may be a sign that they were never really saved at all. In other words, if a person falsely identified as a Christian and suffered the persecution of a believer, the suffering served no purpose. The purpose of suffering was, in part, to be a tool of sanctification. See James 1, verses 2 and following. But if one was not, not truly saved, the suffering was, was not efficacious. It did not really bear the fruit and the purpose for which it was intended. So this is an amazing reality. It's an amazing appeal because they obviously had suffered something. Did their suffering mean anything? Did it count toward anything? Was it valuable? Was it really doing anything? If you didn't really embrace the singular grace of Christ. Now the sixth and last question he uses here is in verses 5 and 6. It's a longer question. He says, does he who supplied the Spirit to you work works of miracles among you by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So the final question is about how the Holy Spirit is provided to us and how the Spirit works among us. Is it by the works of obedience to the law or by grace? Are we self-empowered to obey Christ or divinely empowered? The implied answer is we are divinely empowered. As in verse 2, the phrase hearing with faith referred to the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in us because faith is a gift. Faith doesn't come from us. We are empowered to believe. As in verse 2, the phrase hearing with faith referred to the evidence of the Holy Spirit given to us. Galatians 2, 8 and 9 says the same thing. Paul strengthened his argument by moving from the empirical to the historical, something that the postmodernists probably wouldn't do today because they have no regard for history. Paul used the patriarch Abraham as an example. In Genesis chapter 15, Abram, who was the, in this text is still called Abram, which means exalted father, struggled to see how God would keep his promise of Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. And that promise was, in you, that is in Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Because the promise was to Abram and his seed, but Abram had no natural seed. In Genesis 14, Abram rescued his rebellious nephew Lot from his enemies, but took none of the spoils of victory except a tithe that was given to Melchizedek, a priest of God Most High, who blessed him and facilitated communion with God. Then in Genesis chapter 15, Abram encountered God. Abram's doubt was revealed. He could not see how God's promise could be fulfilled. So God confirmed his promise. Abram's heir would be his own natural son. Chapter 15, verse 4. Abram's response was recorded in chapter 15, verse 6. And he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he, that is the Lord, accounted it to him for righteousness. Paul quoted this text in Galatians 3, 6 to stress that God will fulfill his unconditional covenant promises. In Genesis 15, Abram took, stood before God in doubt and unbelief. There was no power for faith from Abraham. The potency for Abraham's faith came from God. And then God imputed it to Abram as righteousness, right standing with God. Faith is therefore the evidence of God's empowering work in us to transform us and make us acceptable with himself. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a gift of grace. There's nothing we do to earn it or deserve it. 
the validation that one has received the Holy Spirit is the power to express genuine faith in Christ. Both the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and our faith are gifts from God, as Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Now the last two verses we want to talk about this morning here. Galatians 3, verses 7 through 9. Know this, that it is, not, it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, If you, in you shall all nations of the earth be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the man of faith. The mark of true believers in Christ is faith in Christ. And faith is expressed through our actions, as James so eloquently stated, that faith without works is dead. In other words, if you claim to have believed something, but your works don't align with that belief, then it, you don't really believe it. There's no such thing as faith without works. One's true faith will be revealed by one's actions. In the Old Testament, the Jewish people were called God's called out people. His ecclesia, his Old Testament ecclesia. In fact, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word ecclesia is used in reference to the nation of Israel. It is easy to presume that ecclesia refers to ethnicity, that is to ethnic Israel. But Paul clarified this point, not only here in Galatians, but also in Romans, that the true Israelites are not necessarily ethnic. They are people of faith. So look what he says here in Romans 2. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. In other words, it's not ethnicity. It's not circumcision. You read on, he says, but a Jew is one inwardly. It's spiritual. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. So here, as well as in, 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 in Romans 2 and in Galatians 3, Paul is making this point that the true Ecclesia of God, Old Testament and New, has always been marked by faith, the spiritual reality of faith in Christ. Clearly for Jesus, the true sons of Abraham were those whose faith in Christ was demonstrated by obedience to Christ. Now I want to just take a, a few minutes to talk about a theological point that comes up here, and that's the point of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the principle of interpretation. Paul's explanation of Genesis 12:3, found in Galatians 3 here, provides an example of two hermeneutical principles that are implicit in Scripture. First, the New Testament clarifies the Old Testament. And second, we use clear Scripture to understand less clear Scripture. But these are just two examples of a broader hermeneutic that are essential to a proper understanding of classical Christianity. Classical Christianity clearly presumes there is a singular transcendent creator who has revealed himself to mankind in a knowable way. Furthermore, as the creator is singular and transcendent, the understanding of the revelation about the creator is also singular and transcendent. Classical Christianity seeks to discover and elucidate this understanding. Furthermore, classical Christianity presumes the necessity and existence of a singular transcendent hermeneutic to help develop this understanding from divine revelation. In addition, classical Christianity presumes the Bible is the revealed word of God and is the best source of revelation about the character and nature of God and his purpose for his creation. The Bible is believed to be verbally 
and plenarily inspired by God and is the most complete source of wisdom for living in God's creation and is the arcade, that is the starting point, the first principles for all wisdom and knowledge. Also, the Bible is assumed to be internally consistent. To these, this perspective, students of classical Christianity make the following common hermeneutical assumptions. First, their grammatical historical approach is the correct foundational hermeneutic. Second, the Old Testament is the original scripture. Classical Christianity is rooted in and emanates from a sound understanding of the Old Testament scripture. Third, because the Bible is assumed to be internally consistent, Scripture explains Scripture. This means that texts that seem to be in conflict are to be harmonized. And fourth, more clear texts explain less clear text. Frequently, this, this will be texts that on a particular theological issue, there are clearer texts than the text you might be looking at. So, and in particular, the New Testament typically explains the Old Testament. That's an expression of clearer text explaining less clear text. The New Testament gives us more complete revelation about Christ. Christ tends to be more hidden in the Old Testament, so it's the New Testament that illuminates the Old Testament. These foundational assumptions are critical for clarity and agreement on the development of the understanding of classical Christianity. Without these foundational assumptions, the interpretations of Scripture could be numerous, and mankind would have no reliable way to know the truth. But given a noble creator who wishes to be known, we must believe that there's a hermeneutic that enables us to discern the intent and meaning of the creator as revealed in the Bible. This is what the study of hermeneutics is and why it is so critical to facilitate growth and maturity in the church. Now, just a quick application here before we, we conclude. Paul stressed the singular gospel of the grace of Christ is, and his stress here is unrelenting because it is the only true gospel. And the, living this truth is the only way to enjoy divine blessings. This means that living based on, on, on any other gospel or some false gospel will lead to dysfunction. Consider the following example. A CFO was hired by a company. The man was a friend of one of the owners. They attended the same local church. The CFO seemed qualified for the job. At least his training experience were appropriate. The company routinely engaged in various transactions that were memorialized in contracts. Part of the responsibility of the CFO was to review all contracts. Contracts can be voluminous and complicated legal documents. Each contract could require considerable time to review. Terms and conditions had to be understood and risk had to be assessed. Soon after joining the company, the CFO's inability to perform timely reviews of the contracts became evident. He agonized over each contract. There were many ways for the CFO to make a mistake. What if he missed or misunderstood or omitted something? Fear gripped him. This, is, this has caused him to freeze. His workflow slowed to a crawl, to a stop, and accordingly the whole company slowed to a, crow, a, 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 a crawl. The bottleneck was the CFO. His aversion to risk crippled the company. I explored the matter with the company's CEO. He discovered, we discovered together, that the CFO could not, make a, could not take a risk. With every contract, he found the reasons not to do it. This was the safest choice. Furthermore, he refused to take responsibility for anything. When something did go wrong, he had to blame someone else. He could never take responsibility. There always had to be a scapegoat. 
the CEO, was a Christian, so we both understood that the underlying problem was spiritual. We knew that the root problem was wrong theology at some level. The CFO's theology was based on the gospel of fig leaves. It took us a while to uncover that, but we finally did. He was seeking to be perfect because he believed that human perfection was required by God. Therefore, he could not accept making any errors or mistakes. To make mistakes was to be flawed and unacceptable with God. He made the error of the Galatian believers who fell from the grace of the singular gospel to the gospel of fig leaves, which is no gospel at all. Though the, <clears throat> though the CFO was a member of a Protestant Christian church that presumably taught the singular gospel, the CFO did not embrace the singular gospel. His, his true works revealed that his faith was in another gospel. Like the Galatian believers, he claimed that he was regenerate but this, by the sovereign work of God, but relatives of sanctification, he had fallen from grace. He was attempting to sanctify himself by his own works. He had drifted away from the singular gospel into a false gospel. He failed to recognize the continued work of God in the present tense of salvation to empower him to mature in Christ. Instead, he presumed that he had to do it by himself. He was trying to save himself and make himself acceptable with God. Therefore, he had to be perfect. Mistakes and errors were not tolerated since they implied he was flawed and not acceptable with God. He made the mistake of the Galatian believers. He started with a singular gospel of grace of Christ, but fell from the grace, fell from grace in the sense that he returned to the works, to works as the basis of his salvation. The story illustrates the importance of sound theology, and in particular a sound gospel and how it practically impacts our life. In Christianity, there's only one sound gospel, the singular gospel of the grace of Christ. Most of the Bible is in the Old Testament, and a major message of the Old Testament is that no matter how and why and how hard man tries, man can never do enough good works to satisfy God's standard of righteousness. Therefore, mankind needs a Savior. The only Savior is Christ. This is the essence of the singular gospel, the foundation of sound theology. Theology has consequences. Good theology has good consequences, and bad theology has bad consequences. May the Lord give us grace to walk in, in good theology.